0: king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In the, each of King Ahasuerus's provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, parmashta Arisai, Aridai, vezatha they killed these 10 sons of Haman and son of Hamadatha the enemy of the Jews however they did not seize any plunder on the day of the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king the king said to queen Esther Esther in the fortress of Susa the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men including Haman's 10 sons what have they done in the rest of the royal provinces Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law, and may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung in the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defending themselves and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th day of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent out letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during these days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing, and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another, to the poor. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you very much, Ryan. I'm sure that Many of us, as you were reading that list of names, were like, whoa, man, I'm glad it's not me this morning. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty tough, eh, all those names? And he did a fantastic job, I think. I th- I, from what I heard, he spent two straight days practicing, right, pretty much, so... Um, just for those of you who are guests with us, uh, we, we like if we have time at the end of the message for a little bit of interaction uh, with, the, with the congregation. So if you have questions that come to mind during the sermon, you can write them down, remember them, uh, and then ask them at the end of the, the message. Um, if you'd prefer not to raise your hand and ask the question, you'll find my phone number in the in the uh, bulletin, I have my phone with me here, and you can text me that question, and if we have time, we'll, uh, we'll get to it. And we might just have some questions today, because what a story we have just read. Just uh, so you know, we're, we're doing four messages on the book of Esther, so we're obviously not covering absolutely everything that happens in the book of Esther. What we're doing is, is we're, we're looking at major themes, and so we looked at the theme of the the apparent absence of God. If you read the book of Esther, one of the things you discover is that God is never mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. And that's kind of curious for a book of the Bible. Why on, the, why on earth would that be? And we discovered that, that that's a, actually a literary device used by the author to show that sometimes when God seems most absent, he is actually very, very present and very much at work behind the scenes. We also looked at how God uses His grace, by His grace, He He uses ordinary, flawed, messed up people like us to do great things for His kingdom, and Esther is kind of a character study in that. We also saw last week of the danger of pride, how pride is the root of all, really, all the problems in the world, all the problems in your life. And all the problems in the world generally can be traced back to pride. And we saw how the gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes pride. And today we're going to look at one more theme from the passage we have just read. And I confess, right at the outset, this is a very difficult text. If you read it carefully, I hope as you were listening carefully or following along carefully, I hope you were kind of going, what? This is violent. These are God's people. What does it say here? The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. I hope when you're reading that and you're listening to that, you're going, this is is awful. I mean, yes, we're quite a bit removed from it. This happened uh, some 2,500 years ago. uh, And times are different. But even for then... Even in those so-called more barbaric times, this sounds like a terrible, terrible thing. What on earth should we be learning from this story? And I have wrestled with this all week long, trying to figure out what on earth we're supposed to learn from this story. And here's what I propose to you. This story teaches us that we desperately, the world desperately needs a savior. We're going to talk this morning about three things. There's an outline in your bulletin that helps explain this. But first of all, we're going to talk about how Esther engaged in what you could call a holy war. Then we're going to talk about how Jesus Christ engaged in the ultimate holy war. And then if we have time, I confess this is dependent upon time, we'll talk about how we can engage in holy war. And I'm using very provocative words, holy war. I admit I didn't have the guts to name the sermon holy war, because I was like, do we really want that? holy war on our bulletin or on our website, but that's essentially what we're going to be uh, looking at. We're going to be looking at this issue of holy war, this issue of judgment, and how desperately the world needs a savior. So first of all, point one, how Esther engages in a holy war. This passage is kind of the climax of the story of Esther, okay? And I'll have to catch you up to explain all the things that come before this climax. First of all, we were introduced to Haman last week, right? He's the villain of the story. He's a bad, bad man, a very wicked man. And he hatched a plot to kill not only Mordecai, his his mortal enemy, so to speak, but also the Jews, all the Jews in the empire of Persia. Mordecai goes to Esther, who's queen and uh, married to King uh, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, same same guy, two different names, and she intercedes on behalf of the king. And, and uh, the way she does it is this way: she holds two banquets, and she invites the king and. Haman to both banquets and the first banquet the reason she has two is because at the first banquet She needs to rekindle her relationship with the king. You'll remember that she hasn't been called into the king's uh, presence for more than a month more than 30 days And so her and the king they might have been sort of on the outs You know what it's like when you're married if you don't see one another you kind of get out of sync Well, she's a smart lady and so she holds a banquet And uh, in this banquet, she just basically wines and dines her husband and cozies up to him and and rekindles the relationship, and everything goes very, very well. And then she holds a second banquet. She says, come back tomorrow with Haman, and we'll have another banquet. And so they have the second banquet, and after having buttered uh, up the king, he finally says to her, okay, like, let's cut to the chase. What did you want to ask me? Because you said you wanted to ask me something. What is it? And she falls at his feet, and she says, I'm a Jew. Reveals that she's a Jew, and my people, the Jews, are under threat. There is a plot to destroy them, and I am begging you to spare them. And the king says, "Well, who would hatch such a terrible plot to destroy a whole people within my empire?" And she says, "Haman did it." And he goes, "Like what? Haman?" And of course. Uh, Haman tries to plead for his life. You really should read this on your own, okay? But Haman tries to plead for his life with Esther. He makes some huge, like, what, what you could call cultural faux pas. He's alone with a woman. He gets close to this woman. He accidentally touches this woman, and, like, then it lights out, okay? The king takes Haman, and he has him hung on the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, and he t- gives Mordecai Haman's job. By the way... Just out of interest's sake. Those gallows are not like the gallows we have today. Those gallows were basically a big wooden pole with a pointy end. And that's what he did with them. So, Mordecai gets the job. But here's the problem. The law of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked. Haman had written a law that said on a particular day the Persians were free to attack the Jews, destroy them, and then take all their stuff, plunder them, all right? And the king, because of this weird law of the Medes and the Persians thing that says you can't revoke laws, the king could not stop that from happening. But now Mordecai is prime minister, so Mordecai says, aha, I got an idea. I'm going to write a different law, and that law says that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. If that happens, if the Persians attack them, the other people attack them, they're allowed to defend themselves, and if they win, they get the plunder. Okay? And the reason Mordecai did that was because the the hope was was that if the Persians knew that the Jews were allowed to defend themselves, they wouldn't attack them in the first place. It doesn't work. The people attack the Jews anyway, or a number of the people attack the Jews anyway, and it's a bloodbath. Verse 5 of our text says, the Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, understand... What they pleased means not like that they were particularly vengeful or vindictive or they desecrated bodies or anything like that. That phrase just means that they won total victory. This was a rout. The Jews were sort of unstoppable. Obviously, I mean, it doesn't say it, but obviously you're supposed to understand that God was behind the Jews. There's no way they should have won a total victory like this, but they did. They even got a hold of all of Haman's sons, all 10 of them, and put them to the sword as well. And then here comes the hard part. The really, So far, you're like, ooh, it's gory and gross, but okay, I get it. Here's probably the part where you're going to say, now what's that about? Verses 11 through 13, listen to this again. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. So this is what's happening. The king is like impressed by the Jews. He says, man, they are crushing out there. They're doing amazing. What else do you want? And then Esther says, if it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa have tomorrow to carry out today's law, and may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. Bah! What? Esther? She asks for one more day. She says, now not province-wide, because you couldn't get the news out, right? To all the provinces in the empire. But in the city of Susa, in the capital, she basically says, let the Jews go at it for one more day. Let them attack one more day. And the king says, okay, go for it. And another 300 Persians are killed in Susa. And the news comes back that some 75,000 Persians are destroyed in the provinces. And then verse 17 says, they fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th. And it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. They instituted a holiday to celebrate what looks like, from our perspective anyway, an absolute massacre. What on earth is going on here? It looks like good Esther and Mordecai, who you know were righteous, have become evil, right? Like they took over uh power and they got Haman's power and then they start after they get that power they start doing the same thing i don't know if you've ever read animal farm some of you maybe have read animal farm george orwell book it's a story about a farmer and his family who are abusive to their animals and so the animals they they there's an uprising and they take over the farm and then the pigs they become the leaders because i don't know if you know this pigs very very smart animals So the pigs become the leaders, but the pigs, they say, yes, all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others, and they begin to abuse their power over the rest of the animals, and interestingly enough, they begin to look like the farmer and his family. And that seems to be what's happening here, that Lord Acton, a philosopher, a British philosopher, once said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and then he says... Almost all great men have been wicked men. And the sense is, is that this is exactly what's happening to Mordecai and Esther. They become wicked. They become drunk with power. Is that what's going on here? And the answer is no. Our problem is, is we don't know our Bibles very well. And so we don't understand what's going on. I know there's a lot of distance, but it's also the fact that we don't really understand the Bible very well. This is what you would call, in biblical terms, a holy war. Now, I'm going to use this term, just war, rather than holy war, because holy war, when we think holy war, we think jihad, Uh, and this is very different than jihad, which says you need to attack all unbelievers at all times and in all places. That's not how holy war worked in the Bible at all. Holy wars were meant to be just, okay? Okay? And the Jews were limited, they were limited to only attacking those who attacked them first. They were allowed to defend themselves, that's it. They were not allowed to pay back for any oppressions that they had experienced in the past. They weren't allowed to say, oh hey, this new decree happened and my neighbor has been sticking it it to me for years, I'm going to go over and smoke him. You weren't allowed to do that. If he came to your house and tried to attack you and enter in, you were allowed to defend yourselves. You'll notice also that three times in this passage, it says that the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. And this is hugely important because, you see, the king said they were allowed to. They were allowed to enrich themselves if they won the battle. If they defeated their enemies, they were allowed to enrich themselves by taking on the plunder, taking on the the riches of those who attacked them. But they didn't do it. And the reason is, is because for the Jews, this battle was not about money, not about advancing themselves, it was about justice. They weren't interested in plundering. They were interested, you heard it in verse 17, you hear it in verse 22 as well. They were interested in rest, relief. They were seeking relief from their enemies. This was about freedom from oppression. This was about the Jews being able to go through life, not always looking over their shoulder constantly, wondering if their enemy was going to get them. Now, now I said we don't know our Bibles well enough, and and the reason is is because we, or the reason I say that is because I didn't know this until I was studying this either. Okay, so it's not like you don't know your Bibles well enough. I don't know my Bible well enough. All right. I started reading this and I was was just shocked to discover that the roots of this battle actually are very, very old. They go all the way back to the time of King Saul and the prophet Samuel. Back in 1 Samuel 15, God tells King Saul to go out and do battle with the Amalekites. Their king is King Agag. And the Amalekites are a wicked ancient people who have troubled the Israelites all the way back to when they left Egypt in the Exodus. If you read through the book of Exodus, you'll read that they were going through the land of the Amalekites. They asked to get passage and the Amalekites said, go ahead, you can have passage. And then as soon as they started going through, the Amalekites came from behind and they started attacking them and picking off the the kids and the old people and taking and plundering because that's what the Amalekites did. They were an ancient, super, like, super wicked people. And it's not just Christian scholars who are trying to sort of justify or legitimize what happens in the Bible who say this. Secular scholars say this as well. The Amalekites were maybe one of the most wicked people groups ever to walk the face of the earth. They never grew any of their own food or shepherded their own flocks or anything. They were nomads who just cruised around taking out other people's and taking their stuff. Not only that, they were highly sexually immoral, to the point where basically any sexual activity was permitted as long as you could pull it off. So if you had to abuse others to satisfy your sexual interests, knock yourself out. They were fine with that. And most egregious was the fact that the Amalekites practiced child sacrifice. They regularly took their infant children who were alive and put them in a burning furnace to be burned to death alive as to sacrifice to their god Molech. They were a terrible people whom God had been patient with for many, many, many years. And finally he has enough and he says to Saul, he says, I want you to take them out. You need to cleanse the earth of their wickedness, but you may not take any of their plunder. Saul goes to war against the Amalekites. He captures Agag, their king. He does not wipe them out, and he takes the plunder. He does like the opposite of what he's told. Saul. And Saul actually loses the kingship over it. That's when God says, you're out. I'm going to anoint another guy. And that's when God seeks out David, okay? Now you fast forward 500 years. And here's Esther and Mordecai. They happen to be descendants of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And they are at war with a descendant of Agag, Haman. Huh. This is not a coincidence. And so this battle is now about Esther and Mordecai having unfinished business as the descendants of Saul with Haman, the descendant of Agag. And so when Esther asks for this second day in Susa to continue this, she's asking, asking the king to allow her to basically finish what Saul started, which was to exact justice on, God's justice, on a terribly wicked people. And you might say, but wait a minute, you said Agag was the descendant of the Amalekites. What about all those Persians? Ah, but those Persians who attacked, they were in league with, with Haman. They were... Living as they were adopting the worldview, they were behaving like I don't know how to, else to say it. They were basically becoming Amalekite ish by being in league with Haman. And so Esther prosecutes a holy war, which is exacting, exacting God's justice on wickedness. And you know, very briefly, this is not the main point, this is like a quick aside. Listen, I don't know what you think about God. You may think God is a big grandpa in the sky who's really nice. And when you ask him for stuff, he gives you that stuff and you get to carry on with your life. And I'm not here to tell you that God is not nice. (laughs) That God does not grant us things and bless us and give us good gifts. But you need to understand the God of the Bible is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. And he judges wickedness. He does. I don't have time to explain it and unpack it, so I'm just going to like whoosh, throw it out there and you can take it home. But here's the deal. If you want a God who does not judge wickedness, you don't want much of a God at all. If you don't want a God who... who Looks at sin and evil and says, I must put that right. You don't really want much of a God at all. You want a limp wristed, weak, sugar daddy in the sky. But when you actually suffer or when you have actually have an, an, an evil done against you, when somebody hurts you dip deeply through an act of injustice, not through an accident or, or not through physical illness, but someone actually perpetuates a wickedness against you, I tell you, you're going to want justice. And if everything is created in God's image and everything is owned by God and God is, is the... Is the ruler of anything and everything? When his image is violated, like how the Amalekites and like Agag was trying—or sorry, not Agag, Haman was trying to violate his image uh, in Persia. Why would God not want justice? That's just an aside. Okay, chew on that. Regardless, it's still disur- disturbing. Even though that's true. It doesn't feel right, right? Because this is just, this looks like eye for an eye. Violence for violence. It, you hit me, I hit you right back. It's like that, uh, you know that movie, The Untouchables? It's this movie about, uh, about um, Al Capone. Sean Connery's in it and uh, that other guy who's not famous anymore is in it as well. Um, and he says, you know how you want to get Capone? When he comes at you with a knife, you come at him with a gun. When he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue right? Is this the best we can do, this kind of escalation of anger? How many parents here are raising their kids to behave this way on the schoolyard? None, right? You're all saying, look, that's not how you do it. You don't fight fire with fire. And yet, here we are, 2,500 years later, after the time of Esther and Haman, and that's how things happen. That's how, that's how we behave. That's how the world behaves. You have Sunni Muslims just massacring Shiite Muslims and Christians, frankly, in other parts of the world. And this last week, honestly, did you think, can you believe that only 40 years after the civil rights movement, After all these gains that the civil rights movement has made, you have people walking through the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia, spouting hatred, spouting violence against ethnic minorities. People were actually unfurling brand new Nazi flags. Brand new. This means somebody is manufacturing Nazi flags, and you can go on the Internet somewhere, probably on the dark web, and, or maybe actually not, probably just on Amazon, I don't know. And you can order a Nazi flag and it will come in plastic, wrapped up, having just come off the presses, and you can unfurl that thing and declare that we have not apparently accomplished the final solution yet. It's madness. The world's not all that different from the time of Esther and Mordecai. We may gag as we read this story and think, how can this happen? But the reality is, is this kind of thing is still happening today. What are we supposed to make of this? You know, it says the Jews got rest from their enemies, right? It does say that. But they don't get it for very long. In Scripture, in the Old Testament, what you discover is is that rest from enemies, it's always temporary. God promised it through Moses. He promised it through Joshua. He promised it through David. He promised it through Solomon. And the Jews would get rest from their enemies for a while. Even here, Esther and Mordecai, they're great heroes. They're saviors who provide rest for God's people, but it never lasts. It never lasts because these holy wars are always perpetuated through violence. And all violence can ultimately do, even if it can suppress violence for a while, all it can actually ultimately do is it can breed more, more violence. And that's why, that was the first point, that's why we need point two. We need a new holy war. We need the holy war that Jesus... Engaged in. You know, the Jews, they battled the Amalekites, right? But that's not really the real enemy. Because you see, if it's not them, it's gonna be someone else. There's the 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 Old Testament is just riddled with one oppressor after another. And actually, sometimes it's the Jews who are oppressing other people or oppressing one another. There's gotta be another enemy. Is there another enemy? Scripture says there is. There's an enemy behind the enemy, you see. There's an oppressor behind the oppressor. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, Adam and Eve are approached by God, and the woman is told by God, he says, listen, your seed and the seed of the serpent, they are going to be in conflict with one another. There is a cosmic battle between your seed and the seed of the serpent that is going to wage throughout history. And that's representative of this cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. And all other conflicts, you see, are really just expressions of this fundamental battle. And that war, that holy war between God and Satan, between God's goodness and the evil that Satan unleashed on the world through our sin and through our fall, it it finds its climax in the battle of Jesus and Satan on the cross. Colossians 2 verse 15 says this. These are incredible words. It says, He, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. That's Christ's holy war, you see. He disarmed the the evil forces. He disarmed the powers of darkness. He disarmed the violence. He did it. But there's a huge difference between his holy war and Esther's holy war, between all the holy wars leading up to Jesus' holy war. How did he defeat evil? Did he stand up and bear his sword and attack when he was attacked? Did he hit back? Did he strike back? No. This is the grand difference. He took it. He overcame evil with good. He overcame hate with love. You see, he was put on the gallows. Remember I told you that the gallows was like being stuck on a piece of wood. Jesus was literally stuck on a piece of wood. And he absorbed the hate and he absorbed the punishment. And the Bible says, you know, that though he was reviled, he reviled not. 1 Peter 2 says this, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He bore himself, he he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. See, Jesus defeated evil by dying, not by killing us, the enemy, but by dying for us, his enemy. That's the ultimate holy war. We need a savior, you see, to break the cycle that gives a rest that lasts, a rest that can overpower the hatred. And maybe you're here this morning and you think, you know, that's kind of a Pollyanna thing. That's pie in the sky, La-di-da. Look at the world. You just said it, preacher. The world still sucks. So what makes you think that this Jesus love is going to overpower all this violence and hatred and self-centeredness and racism and classism and poverty and human trafficking and and, uh, nuclear arms races and all and environmental degradation. It goes on and on and on and on. How can this Jesus love actually really do anything? You go back to Charlottesville and you think of the hatred that you saw on TV last week and you want to hit back, don't you? You just want to hit back. I want to hit back. And that's not even my fight. This is in the U.S., although we have our problems too. You know, when you go back to the original Civil Rights Movement, people advocated the same thing, eh? Martin Luther King, Jr., he was the leader of the Civil Rights Movement. He was the face of the Civil Rights Movement and his... (laughs) <laughs> if I can put it that way, they were saying, you know what, Martin, we got to fight back, man. We can't just stand there and take it and get clobbered. This is ridiculous. You say we shall overcome, but we're not overcoming anything. We're just getting our, our boots to our faces and having our, our skulls crushed in. And, and Martin Luther King Jr., he resisted. He resisted the call to, to, to strike back with ever, all of his being. He resisted it. He said, we will overcome evil with good. And in one of the most remarkable, I think, passages ever written by a non-biblical preacher, <laughs> if I could put it that way, Martin, Martin Luther wrote this in a sermon called Love Your Enemies. And I'm, it's on the front of your bulletin. I encourage you to look at it while I read it to you. This is Martin Luther King Jr. speaking. Jesus said to love your enemies. Now, I don't have the drama of his voice, I confess. I'm sorry. You say, of course, this is not practical. Life is a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of dog eat dog. Am I saying that Jesus commands us to love those who hurt and oppress us? Do I sound like most preachers? Idealistic and impractical. Maybe in some distant utopia, you say, the idea will work, but not in the cold, hard world in which we live. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as, co- as is cooperation with evil. As is cooperation with evil? Or sorry, it should say good there. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day... We shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. The great military leaders of the past are gone and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes, but the empire of Jesus built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love is still growing. I'll give you one quote on our third point that we can now engage in holy war. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens. And for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. How do you engage in holy war? Every time you close your hands and bow your head in prayer, asking God to defeat evil, you're engaging in holy war. Every time you respond with forgiveness to someone who has lashed out against you and gentleness and kindness, you are engaged in holy war. Every time you stand up and say no to injustice, whether it's racism or any other form, you are engaged in holy war. But remember, your enemy is not that guy. It's not those people. It's not that group. It's the devil. And whenever you wonder, will this work? Just remember D-Day. Remember D-Day, you guys who know a little bit about World War II? D-Day and V-E-Day, right? You have Victory in Europe Day and you have D-Day, which was Day Day. Weird name. (laughs) D-Day was the day when, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy en masse and they gained a foothold in Europe. And if you read European history and military history, virtually every military historian will tell you on that day the Allies won the war. The rest was just mopping up. It was sometimes very bloody and very deadly and very awful, but that was the day the war was won. And then VE Day was the day when lasting peace came to Europe. Many, many, many months later, Jesus Christ has already, already given us D-Day. D-Day happened 2,000 years ago. We're in the skirmishes now but V-E day is coming. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for granting us a Savior who breaks the cycle of evil. In our hearts, in our families and homes, and in our society, help us to see the hope that he provides, call on us to engage the fight and not give up because victory has been won by our Savior.